This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, July 5th, 2022, and this is your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Thanks for being with us. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, an adequate functioning healthcare system requires enough professionals trained in enough skills. A new study from Heartland Forward explores five fast-growing areas in the middle of the country, Austin, Nashville, Durant, Oklahoma, Oxford, Mississippi, and Northwest Arkansas, to understand what's needed in healthcare services and how to train more people. A conversation with Ross Duvall, the president and CEO of Heartland Forward, about that study. And our militant grammarian Catherine Shields is back with us as well. First, a new consulate has opened to serve an established and thriving Salvadoran population centered in Springdale. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The El Salvador Consulate headquarters on West Sunset Avenue in Springdale officially opened in early June. The walls are freshly painted cobalt blue. The place is decorated with Salvadorian photos, iconography, and flags. Gracias. ¿Qué tal? ¿Cómo está? Un placer que nos visiten este día. Mi nombre es Mercedes Argueta. Mercedes Argueta, Vice Counsel of the El Salvador Consulate, works closely with General Counsel Alicia Hernandez. She's headquartered in California. Spokesperson Jessica Aguilar-Hyatt, director of SUPA, Salvadoreños Unidos para Kansas, provides a guided tour. Yes, the lobby area. Mm-hmm. The people check in right there at the glass windows. Down a hallway, Aguilar-Hyatt gestures towards a large map of El Salvador painted on the wall, covered by a constellation of little flags. And uh, this was set up so that people that came to the official grand opening could put the little flag up here, their family name, and kind of what part of El Salvador they're from. The hallway leads to the consulate's interior waiting room. So this is where they're waiting to receive their documents to go after they've seen the consulate. We walk past the small kitchen and offices, taking a seat in a conference suite, where Jessica Aguilar-Hyatt explains the array of services offered to El Salvador immigrants. They offer them uh, passport services, uh, notarization, power of attorneys, marriage registrations, uh, birth certificates, and dual citizenships. They don't perform marriages, but they can produce or you know, help them get a certificate. Service fees are nominal. For example, replacing a lost passport will cost around $85. The consulate will also assist families to transport and bury deceased loved ones back in their homeland. This consulate also serves employers in the region seeking employees where they can get visas to come just for work. So they work that out. They might come for a six-month term and then go back, depending on what type of work they need. But they can arrange that so they can bring people in across the border with the right documentation for work purposes. The consulate hosted a private grand opening with state and local officials, as well as the Springdale Chamber of Commerce, a key supporter. An open house followed on June 25th. 19 Salvadorian consulates operate across the U.S., the closest is in Dallas, as well as Houston and Chicago. So people used to have to drive to Dallas, Texas. And unfortunately, with undocumented citizens, they're driving across state borders without a driver's license. That could be very dangerous, you know. And plus, they're spending their money, right? They, they earn their money here, but they're going and spending it in another state. So now they can have all the services here, so they don't have to travel. It's safe. They, can, they don't have to use their vacation time to go get a document that they can come get here in 30 minutes to an hour. So uh, it's helping the community, it's helping the businesses as well, you know. So their employees are happier because now they can use their vacation time for vacation. Aguilar Hyatt is native of El Salvador, a Central American nation bordered by Honduras, Guatemala, and the Pacific Ocean. Her family fled El Salvador in the 1980s to escape a 12-year-long civil war waged among right-wing government and paramilitary forces and left-wing social and economic justice advocates. According to Catholic Relief Services, which assists Central American refugees seeking asylum in the U.S., the Democratic Republic of El Salvador in recent decades has been plagued by gang violence, chronic poverty, and unemployment triggering mass migration. But Aguilar Hyatt says El Salvador has vastly progressed. Now the country's completely different, of course. You know, under the new presidency, uh, President Bukele is, not only is he uber smart, he's hardworking, and he's a forward thinker. So he has definitely helped the country arise. 
Aguilar Hyatt, whose organization, SUPA, worked to generate necessary data and paperwork to help establish a consulate here, says many Salvadorians are coming to Arkansas to educate their children, obtain health care, and for employment opportunities. Salvadorians, we are very talented people, let me tell you. Walmart has a great percentage of them. They work at Walmart Home Office as well as Walmart stores. Um, J.B. Hunt, you know, they, they're truckers. They also work at the J.B. Hunt corporate office at Tyson. They work at the Tyson Home Office, but they're also working at the farmhouses. They're working at, you know, the chicken houses. So it's a very diverse, hardworking group, right? We're everywhere. I mean, Simmons, you name it, um, are all the staff marks, the temporary places. We're not afraid to work. I mean, landscapers, but independently owned businesses, um, even uh, I heard it from the uh, director of the exterior uh, from El Salvador, how the businesses that we visited here, in most other states when they went, it was mostly like restaurant owners, right? Like the food type stuff, right? Bring a little bit of culture of that. Here, we met owners of car dealerships. We met owners of Casa de Dinero. Macias Jewelry. They're not only Latino-owned businesses, but they are Salvadorian-owned businesses. Attorney and Springdale City Councilman Kevin Flores legally immigrated from El Salvador to the U.S. over 30 years ago with his family when he was a small boy. Speaking by phone, he says he was among the first Salvadorians to settle in the region. There was an influx of job opportunities in Northwest Arkansas to, well, to immigrants. And so we moved here in 1995, in the spring of 1995, when I was in first grade. Flores joined the Marine Corps after high school, later obtaining a law degree from the University of Arkansas Fayetteville in 2019. He practices in Rogers. I'm still one of very few Hispanic attorneys in the entire state of Arkansas. And even with our large influx of, uh, of, of the Hispanic population that we have here, it's, it's uh, still surprising that I'm still one of the few. But because of that, I, I, I practice general practice, uh, which with, with, with an emphasis on immigration, uh, real estate and estate planning, uh, and, and small business stuff as well. Flores says when he and his family first came to Northwest Arkansas, the region's now historic Hispanic influx was just beginning to occur. You know, initially the Salvadorian population was slow to grow, but by the by the 2000, it, uh, it, it was, you know, we're well embedded here in Northwest Arkansas. Um, and we've been the second largest uh, Hispanic uh, ethnicity uh, in Northwest Arkansas behind uh, nationals from uh, Mexico. Nearly a half million Salvadorian immigrants live in California, most in Los Angeles. 170,000 have settled in Texas, with around 100,000 in New York. Flores believes as many as 35,000 Salvadorians live in Northwest Arkansas. And so, you know, the Salvadorian presence in Northwest Arkansas has significantly grown. And through that, this great organization called Salvadoreños Unidos para Arkansas, um, acronym of SUPA, um, you know, I don't necessarily recall exactly when they began, but it's this awesome nonprofit that, that brings cultural awareness through uh, education and, and events and festivals. Um, and, but one thing they've also done is they coordinated mobile consulates between the, uh, the Salvadorian consulate in Dallas and, and Northwest Arkansas. So they've been instrumental in, in bringing um, that consulate to provide services in Northwest Arkansas. Jessica Aguilar-Hyatt says her mom, Paz Aguilar, founded SUPA six years ago. She founded the organization, so it's called Salvadoreños, but we're all inclusive. Actually, our board member has. Right now, we have Mexicans, Guatemalans, Venezuelans, right? So we don't get grants. We don't get money from anybody. All our money, we raise ourselves. We'll have, um, we'll do cookouts. We'll raffle off items that are donated by our own board members. We work for our money, so we raise our own money. Including funding to establish the new consulate, approved in late 2020 by both U.S. and Salvadorian governments, a process stalled, she says, by the pandemic, but which is finally bearing fruit this summer. Kevin Flores says the new consulate will be of great help to the Salvadorian population in northwest Arkansas and the state. And what's unique um, about the Salvadorian population uh, compared to say the Mexican population in Northwest Arkansas, we're mostly uh, in Northwest Arkansas by and large, whereas in the, the Mexican population in, in Arkansas, th there's pockets throughout the state. So it, it was easier to bring the consulate to Northwest Arkansas where normally consulates go to the capital, where that's where the Mexican ca uh, consulate's at at the moment. Uh, and that's how it's traditionally done. But because there's less Salvadorians throughout the state and more concentrated here in Northwest Arkansas, 
it was a no-brainer to me uh, for the consulate to come up here. And it's important to note that this is the only Salvadorian consulate between Dallas, Chicago, and Atlanta. So it, it's, it's going to attract other people uh, in the Midwest region as well, and even parts of the South. To learn more about their new Salvadorian consulate, search Salvadoreños Unidos para Kansas on Facebook. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The 8th Annual Salvadorian Festival will take place Saturday, August 6th, at the Jones Center in Springdale from 8 until 8 that day, where El Salvador consulate representatives will be on hand. High school and GED graduates who grew up in foster care were honored at the governor's mansion last week. The Division of Children and Family Services hosted a graduation ceremony for the students. Governor Asa Hutchinson shared words of encouragement to the new grads. I also want to encourage you that it doesn't matter where you start, it matters where you finish. And uh, in, in my life, I have one great academic award that I got. And that academic was ward, award was that I made the most progress from my first year to my third year of law school. The director of the Division of Children and Family Services, Misha Martin, says after graduating, foster children will either pursue college, trade school, or start work. She says they have the option of staying in foster care until they are 21, as long as they are working, pursuing education, or job training. Okay, so I just would like to say that I listen to KUF every morning, and normally I listen to it in after in the afternoon. Um, I like all of them, like even though they're talk, but I like how it gives me news, you know. And I'm only ten years old, and my name's Avi. I'm Washington Elementary student, about to go to Owl Creek, previously in Owl Creek, but I'm liking it here. Thank you very much for letting us do this, and tell Pete Hartman I said hi. Will do. Thanks, everyone, for listening to KUAF Public Radio and Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. A new study from Bentonville-based Heartland Forward, Keepers of a Healthy Heartland, Strategies for Building a Robust Health Workforce, takes on the reasons why there are many unfilled jobs in healthcare. The study centered on five fast-growing metro and micropolitan areas in the middle of the country, including northwest Arkansas. Among the findings... There isn't enough awareness about jobs in the medical world that require fewer than four years of education. There isn't enough incentive, like available child care, to attract more people into those fields. And there are many opportunities for communities to correct these challenges. Last Friday afternoon, Ross Duvall, the president and CEO of Heartland Forward, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to talk with us about the study that was released last week. He says this study is informed and inspired by previous work done by Heartland Forward. We look at our research as both linear and dynamic in the sense that as we, as we uncover new kernels of opportunity in a report, it might lead to further questions to investigate and drill down in. So a great example is that uh, was last summer, late last summer, we released a Heartland of Opportunity, which looked at occupations, professions, where you could earn a middle-class income without a four-year college degree. So less than four years, associate degrees, certifications, apprenticeships, and all those things, and a, a number of occupations. But one of the things we found is that those areas of the greatest growth opportunities for jobs was in the healthcare professions. And you know, not at the physician level, where you need an advanced degree or an MD, but at four years or less. And so we thought that warranted further investigation because there's this huge demand growth occurring in the health professions, but we haven't seen the supply to fill those gaps. And so we, that led to keepers of a healthy heartland looking at ways to build robust healthcare workforces in the heartland and even beyond, but we focused on the heartland and looking at kind of five rapidly growing communities who've been addressing these issues for much longer. I love the communities, too, because you have Austin and Nashville, which are a million plus, Northwest Arkansas getting there, yep. and then Durant, Oklahoma, and Oxford, Mississippi, which are growing, but they're not as big as the others. Yes, we were trying to examine different size metropolitans to see if there were commonalities or differences in what we would find. There are all, all five are fairly rapidly growing. Um, some have you know, large healthcare organizations located, like in Nashville, 
but others don't have that. Uh, University of Texas Austin just got a medical school three or four years ago, uh, and they're addressing some of their workforce needs. But it, it really was to examine what are some of the challenges in one making young people aware that there are opportunities in healthcare professions, and that's a whole study in itself, and then kind of for upskilling and bringing in communities of color, both on the demand side and the supply side. So there's great opportunities for professional growth within the healthcare profession, but not as many minority communities are aware of those, those jobs that could be there for them. There's a list in this study about um, some of the areas where there is a shortage in the heartland, if, if not other places as well. Uh, phlebotomy, uh, surgical technicians, there's like 10, and some of them I didn't know existed either. A lot of technician areas where it only requires an associate degree and then maybe some special certification. Uh, but surgical technicians, you think through uh, the different types of nurses that only require associate degrees, practical nurses. Um, and in many Heartland communities, they pay fairly decent wages. I think there's some issues in terms of career progression, but this is, a, this is an area where without a four-year degree, you can truly achieve a middle-income job. And at the same time, because the baby boom generation retiring, so taking doctors and medical professionals out, yeah. and as retire, need more medical attention. I mean, it's All this, true. It's yeah. both a demand supply side. So think of this. I'm one of the youngest baby boomers. I barely fall into that category. I'm not, I'm not retiring anytime soon. But there's some older baby boomers, right, who are already retiring uh, and are about to retire in the next two or three years. And that's such a large segment of the workforce in the health professions. And that's just in itself just replacing the existing workforce without any future increase in demand. So what we've seen, we have unhealthy lifestyles, we don't exercise as much. Obesity is much higher than it ever has been. And then you have all the chronic diseases associated with obesity, diabetes, heart disease, various forms of cancers, and going on down the list. And so that increases the demand for care just because we're unhealthier. Um, and w when you project that out um, and include that we now have the Affordable Care Act, which brought more people into the system, and it's a good thing. We want people accessing the healthcare system, especially for preventative care. But the, that kind of combination caused kind of a surge in demand. Then you throw on top of it COVID burnout, mm -hmm. many people working in these professions, especially some of the lower pain areas, got burnout, and many of them left the healthcare workforce seeking other opportunities just because they were burnt out. They didn't feel they had the career progression. And I think much more work needs to be done within the system, community colleges, certifications, in helping people who have entered at the lower, so it might be a home health care nurse, a practitioner, um, to, to upskill, if you will, to advance longer career progression to do so. Upscale, Upscale Northwest Arkansas does a great job in this. Uh, they've identified right. communities of color from the supply side who aren't aware. And that the, are, there are these opportunities. You have to get to students in middle school, in the early stages of high school, and make sure that they and their parents are aware of these career opportunities. Because without that transmission of information, you can't make an informed career decision. And so that's an important area. Then we also have to look at people who might have already been in the workforce for a while, working hourly wage jobs, who, who want to be able to accomplish more in their career. And so that's where the upskilling comes in, where somebody's already in the workforce, and they have different needs. They may need it's a lot of women to go into this profession. They may need uh, child care services during the day. They may need support for transportation. Uh, they may need all types of other support, you know, in many cases, tuition or books. And so I think that's a real area that we need to focus on. We, 
we need more people in these fields. Do we have enough uh, institutions ready to educate them for these fields? Kyle, you hit on a very important point. Uh, if you talk to professionals, I was aware of this before, but one of the outcomes of doing this research was really recognizing to the extent we do not have enough trainers to train the workforce. So for example, I guess I was aware of this, but I didn't realize the extent. Um, nurses that are teaching nurses tend to be compensated less than those that work in the private sector. And in generally, these are the ones that have the most depth, in-depth skills. They're most up-to-date. They have to be to keep their accreditation. And they typically earn less than someone working in a private practice as a nurse. And so guess what? Not many people are in the healthcare education profession, you know, below an MD. And so that it's a real issue, and we need to address that. And yeah, it becomes this self self uh, it's a self fulfilling prophecy, right? <laughs> a backwards one. Like, yes. if you have fewer people teaching, you'll have fewer people learning, and it will keep going. Yeah. You how do you get out of that negative feedback loop? That's a major cog in the pipeline to bringing people through this profession. A another area that you wouldn't typically think about. So as we see more, um, I'll call them modern programs, recognizing that many people going into the profession uh, have, have children, they've been in the workforce, they have other demands, and so they need assistance. But l looking at these programs so that you can upskill and, and think about the career progressions that are available. Now, here, here's another obstacle in many cases. As you move up the career ladder in many of these healthcare professions, you reach cutoff points. Some might, might call them <laughs> drop spots, if you will, where childcare support reimbursement is cut off from the federal government. And so in many cases, as you go on to the next profession and you've, you've upskilled, you lose some of your federal benefits for child care and other services, which actually reduces your take-home wage. Right, right. And so I'm not suggesting that it means that health care providers need to pay more. I think they should in many cases. But it says we need to be reexamining our safety nets and the way the federal programs are structured that are meant to help people, it's actually retarding them, restraining them from progressing their careers and becoming more productive and filling the need that we have just because we, it's a step function. It goes, you have this benefit and it immediately goes away once you make this $1 extra mm. without it being phased in. It's just... That's something we need to address. I personally, uh, after doing this study, being involved in it, am going to be going to Washington more because you have to go there to address the federal issues. There's some state, state initiatives that could assist, but most of the support comes from federal programs. And to really make them aware, if you want to fill jobs that are open today, you complain about the 10, 11 million job openings we have, many of them in healthcare, and this is one of the reasons why we haven't been able to fill them. Yeah, so there are four big sort of steps in this report, in this study, awareness, education, we've talked about, and incentive. you got to make people be able to and want to go into these professions. That's right. First, first got to educate them that there are opportunities that are there. But then you need to recognize that some of the jobs can become mundane after a while. It's repetitive. It's like working in a pen factory, right? You're doing the same thing all day long. You're drawing blood all day long. You're doing something else. Talking to many healthcare professionals and workers in this industry, they feel that there needs to be rotational opportunities so that they can rotate into another, maybe it's a similar position with similar skill levels, but they need some specialized training but not substantial, not something that requires a certification in addition, so they can rotate through. That way they're exposed to different aspects of the healthcare profession and can make more informed choices about career path opportunities and what additional education and certification they must they might require. And also it's about respecting employees. Mm -hmm. um, anyone who's had 
medical doctors in their family uh, will make you aware that sometimes they tend to speak uh, not, uh, not bestowing the professionalism that many people in this sector have, and they're looked down upon, and, and that is felt. Look, we can't have a healthcare system that just relies on MDs, right? Right. And I think there's, there's an increasing awareness of that today, but we have all these roadblocks that don't allow the supply to increase in the progression. And these are things that we can fix. In many cases, they don't require um, additional funding. In some cases, they do. Um, but there are other things that, that simply don't require additional funding. I know this wasn't part of the story, but can't this have another effect on a region that's growing where maybe you don't have enough of a certain medical training or profession and someone may not want to move or establish a presence there if they think, oh, I'll still have to go 200 miles to get this procedure done? It's very true. And in fact, uh, when I arrived in Northwest Arkansas five years ago and working with the Northwest Arkansas Council, and others at University of Arkansas, UAMS, in uh, various healthcare providers, um, it was a study done that really showed that we were lacking in several professions in oncology and and um, nephrology. I think was it, was low. Yeah, absolutely in, in certain types of cancer care. And on the one hand, this is something you. It's a good thing in the sense it happened because this area was growing so rapidly and there was demand for these services. But without the specialized care, what starts happening is that people who have very um, advanced cases will go to the Cleveland Clinic for heart specialization. Uh, they might go to the Mayo Clinic right, for other things or to MD Anderson in Houston for specialized cancer care. So that was something that the council and others have formed, Whole Health Institute exists today, trying to address some of these issues. The other issue here is certification. So where you have areas like Northwest Arkansas, uh, if you look at Nashville, even in Oxford, Mississippi, they're fairly rapidly growing. If you want to go across the state border, your occupational certification, your license does not automatically transfer. And this, this makes it difficult for people in the healthcare professions to relocate across state borders. If nothing else, we need to have at least a regional approach to this. Maybe it's not a national approach. Maybe it's five, six states, whatever they're contiguous, could easily form reciprocal relationships and acknowledging that certifications in various occupations are transferable across state lines. One of the last steps here is, you know, connecting the knots, which you're advocating for. And I think it's important for people to know that these studies don't just happen, then fade to the dustbins of history. You can use this information to talk to policymakers, to talk to CEOs, and try to make change, advise them on changes. That's absolutely right. I, I, I am heartling forward because as long as I'm there, this will be the case. You know, research for the sake of research might be interesting to those conducting it, but we try to gear our research, research to where it can be applied and the policy considerations around it that you can recommend. Just as an example, one thing we're very proud of at Heartland Forward is we did a report called Reshoring Manufacturing, Can the Heartland Lead the Way? It was released in February of 2021, and it was shared uh, through Jobs Ohio, which is the Ohio Economic Development Arm, to Intel and other high-tech companies. On Christmas Day, Governor DeWine of Ohio got a phone call from the CEO of Intel, Pat Gelsinger, telling him, we have chosen your location to build two new computer chip plants outside New Albany, Ohio, part of the Columbus metro area. And in the announcement at the White House and in Newark, Ohio, Pat Gelsinger, the Intel CEO, said, we put silicon in the Silicon Valley, and now we're putting silicon in the heartland. And it's been referred to as Silicon Heartland. So we help make the case for many manufacturers underestimate the true cost of doing business in China and other locations by up to 30%. There's a lot of regulations, red tape, IP concerns, then it relocating here in the United States. And so the point being is that you can, you can conduct research 
that can lead to policy recommendations and drive economic activity. And that's a relatively short amount of time between publication and that announcement, right? Like oh, three, it was. No. It like was, two years? or Oh, no. It, no, was, it was eight, nine months. And I think there is a tendency for some of us to think when we're taking on challenges like health care, oh, this is going to be a slog and it's going to take decades. But there's – You can do that, – that's a, an unusual situation. Intel – realize we're in the midst of a computer sure. chip shortage. We need to get there fast. And we need to pass the CHIPS Act. That hasn't happened yet. Right. Intel's been talking about that. I, I've been talking to a few folks myself. Um, but it, unique circumstances. But you, if you can gain a critical mass and enough people, enough organizations say, we have to fix it, it can get done. Despite all the political division we have in this country, especially once you get to the local level. Politics is not as critical as it is at the national level. You don't have the disagreements to the extent that you do there. And people can come together recognizing, like, who's going to lobby against an intel coming to Columbus, Ohio? So if you're the Democratic candidate for governor there, you're not going to say that's a bad thing. Otherwise, you're going to really lose an election. Right. (laughs) Finally, one last admittedly silly question or maybe just an observation, isn't it great to have the word Heartland in your name because you can use that in so many ways in study titles? You got we can, one. yes. So Heart, uh, what was it? Um, heartland of Opportunity, yes. Keepers of a Healthy Heartland. That's yes, nice. so we'll see how creative we can be in the future because there may be diminishing marginal returns into using that. I'm an economist, folks, so that's an economic term, meaning that we can't use it over and over too many times. But uh, fortunately, we have Blake Wolsey, who is our communications head, uh, who's very good at titles. So we will milk Heartland in our titles of reports for as long as possible. Ross, thank you so much for the, the work and thanks for coming in. Thank you, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be here. Ross Duvall is the president and CEO of Heartland Forward in Bentonville, an entity that calls itself a think and do tank. He discussed the new study, Keepers of a Healthy Heartland, Strategies for Building a Robust Health Workforce, that was released last week. He visited the Carver Center for Public Radio last Friday afternoon. You can find the report and much more about Heartland Forward's other studies at heartlandforward.org. That's music from Blue Thread's CD, All Across the Map. The band, co-founded by Nicola Radon from the music faculty at the University of Arkansas and Christy Catt, a vocalist and music researcher who lives in Boston. This month, Blue Thread will perform four times in our listening area, performing Indian stories and the roots of ragas and women's tales from the Mediterranean and American ballads. Later this week, we'll talk with Nikolai Christie and one of the musical guests who will be playing with them for that series of concerts, Kartik Balachandran. We'll talk about the shows in Bentonville, Van Buren, and Fayetteville, and much more. That conversation later this week on Ozarks at Large on KUAF. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Jones Center in downtown Springdale presents The Worst Case Scenario Survival Experience, an interactive exhibition for kids and families that put survival skills to the test. Activities include a quicksand ball pit, climbing a wall, picking a lock, and more. Tickets at thejonescenter.net. Still to come on this edition of Ozarks at Large, our militant grammarian. Brand new conversation about A words. That's just ahead. A reminder that KUAF is more than just KUAF 91.3. We also have HD channels. KUAF HD 2 is classical music around the clock. KUAF 3 is, well, mostly jazz, but also on the weekend you can hear encore broadcasts of our locally produced music shows. HD 2, HD 3, KUAF 2, KUAF 3. You can find them on your free 
KUAF.com. You can use your HD radio, or you can ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF 2 or KUAF 3. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. Two black Seminole men born in Arkansas received a Medal of Honor for an action against Comanche Indians. John Ward and Pompey Factor were among a large group of black Seminoles who moved to Mexico in the 1850s to avoid possible enslavement. They returned to the U.S. in 1870, and Ward and Factor enlisted in the Army as scouts. On April 25, 1875, they, an officer, and another scout followed the tracks of 75 horses they believed were stolen from Texas settlers. They found the settlers, along with about 30 Comanches, and opened fire, killing three warriors and wounding another. As the Comanches were about to encircle their position, they rushed to their horses, but the officer was unable to mount his skittish animal. Ward rode back and pulled him onto his horse as the others provided covering fire, and the small party escaped. All three scouts were awarded a Medal of Honor on May 28, 1875, on the testimony of the officer, who said they just saved my hair. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Catherine Sherlds, our militant grammarian. Welcome back. Hello. Kyle, last month we talked about P words yep. that we knew but didn't know. Yes. Well, now we're going to talk about A words. Okay. But I know these. I just want to be sure that our listeners know them too. All right. And before we begin, let me acknowledge that these errors only matter in writing, not the spoken word. Okay. Their differences involve whether there are spaces or not, and oh. we don't speak our spaces. Right. Okay. I know what's coming. Mm-hmm. The first one should be easy, but it's not, I guess, judging from the times I see it misused. Kyle, how do you spell the A word or phrase? And when I say word, I'm always going to mean that or phrase. Sure. That means a whole bunch. A space L-O-T. Right. A lot. A lot. And what do you think the common misspelling is? Yeah, just make it one word. Mm-hmm. A lot. That's not even a word. Right. It's two words, but it's not one to mean a bunch. You could write lots or many. Yeah. There is a word that can be spelled somewhat like the mistake. What is it? A lot. Oh, to a lot, uh-huh. a certain number uh-huh. of whatever. And how do you spell that? A-L-L-O-T. Two. Right. It's a verb meaning to apportion or share a, ta- a task. Huh. It's related to the noun allotment, which means right. the amount of something allocated to a particular person. Okay, here's one that drives me crazy because its misuse is becoming commonplace. Kyle, how do you spell the A word in this sentence? I hate it when we're apart. A-P-A-R-T. One word? Yes. Mm-hmm. And how about this use? I guess it's just a part of growing up. That's two words. Two a a part. part. But these days I see the one word version used for both meanings. They even, ha- they even have slightly different pronunciation. Apart and apart. Yeah. Did you hear? Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So you've seen like someone would write, oh, um, everywhere. you need to be a part of the solution. Yes. That's the exact it's opposite. opposite. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and I, I hate being, I, I have to be a part of your life. You mean Bye. apart from your life? <laughs> okay. But anyway, even though it's pronounced a little bit different, it doesn't stop people from writing a part, one word, when right. they mean part, just a part. A part means an individual piece of something. A part is an adverb to describe things that have been separated. If you could replace the term one part, then a part is the one you yeah. mean. D- two words, a yeah. part. Mm-hmm. If I forgot my lunch, Kyle, I might ask you to share your sandwich with me. How would I ask you using the a word or phrase, the same one we just talked oh, about? Oh, okay. You're going to add, oh, can I have a part of your sandwich? Mm-hmm. And then if you grant my wish, what would you have to do? I'd have to give you a part of my how sandwich. How would you have to, what would you, well, but how would you get a part? Like You'd have to knife? tear it. Tear it apart. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> That's the one word. Cut it apart. Cut it apart. One word. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Often, we will omit the article A. For example, interviewing local politicians is part of your job. We don't have to use the A. Oh, right, mm-hmm. right. Understood A. The word apart can be used literally or figuratively. Can you give me an example? Well, literally, mm-hmm. let's tear apart this old carpet and throw it away. Mm-hmm. Um, and figuratively, um, 
Well, I suppose uh, you romantically, right? We've been torn apart mm-hmm. by finances. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, that almost has a little bit too much of a physical thing. I'm thinking, okay. but I, I agree with you. But his coldness made them grow apart. Okay, sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. So the same thing. Yeah, pretty much. Um, apart, one word can be used in the phrase apart from. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's synonym for besides or except for. I love to be with my family apart from my bratty little brother. Uh-huh. Now, I wouldn't use that construction, but. Right, but I've heard it. Uh-huh. I've heard it and I've read it. Our final A word wasn't one that I really studied until I began to teach grammar in journalism school. I was so pleased when I found a pithy, simple rule that keeps me from ever wondering about it again. Okay. Before I teach you the rule, Kyle, how would you spell the A word in this sentence? I've been waiting here a while, waiting for the concert to begin. I've been waiting here a while. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's something funny here, obviously, (laughs) because it's part of this quiz. I want to spell it A while. Two words. Is that what you want to say? That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no? No. Not. What is a while? Okay, help me One out. word. A while. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And I've been waiting for a while. I've been here for a while waiting for the concert to begin. Now, one now word that's or two, two words. words? That's two words. I don't hear the difference. Well, I'm going to tell you. Okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> um. The simple rule is that a while, one word, mm-hmm. means for a while. So if you say for a while, mm-hmm. if you spell it one word, you're saying for, for a while. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It makes sense. This you is don't when, believe it. <laughs> this is when the language is just a little bit more difficult than it needs to be. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. I agree with that. This yeah. is a bit superfluous. Yeah, yeah. But... You know, we want to be right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yes, yes. Um, The two words for, uh, excuse me, the two words a while Mm -hmm. can be preceded by the word for, but the one word cannot. Yeah, I think I'm there. I think I'm there. So in in the last example, it's been a while since I've heard the band. The two-word use doesn't always have the word for before it. It's been a while. Not for a while. It's been a while. Two words. Mm-hmm. Here's the A word I would use. <laughs> oh. I've been waiting here about three hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, Kyle, now that you know the rule, um, mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. mark, mm-hmm. how would you spell the A word in this sentence? Okay. We played cards a while after dinner. That's going to be one word. Exactly. Okay. Because it includes the word for. Yes. Yes. And this one. We played cards for a while after dinner. That's two words. Right, because I actually said the word for. Yes. Okay. For our listeners who want more than a simplified rule, (laughs) a while, one word, is an adverb. For those of us who want a simplified rule, (laughs) go ahead. That's such a simple rule. (laughs) If you put the word for before... The yeah. W- yeah, the word you're right. has two words, and you don't, you know. Yeah, okay. you're right. You're right. Okay, I was so proud of coming up with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, I don't good. know it's that I invented good. it, but yes. I, I okay. discovered it. For our listeners who want more than just a simplified rule, a while one word is an adverb. Test it by replacing a while with another adverb, such as quietly. Now this I like. All right, because. And and it's people who go, well, I don't know what adverbs are. Yeah, you do. It's the words that end with L-Y. And sometimes when. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Callback. And myriad other yes, words. Yes. Okay, so what about this sentence, Kyle? Go play a while. Now replace it with an adverb. Go play quietly. Yeah. So that is one word. One word. Mm-hmm. Adverb is one word. Mm-hmm. Go play a while. The, ad- the adverb is modifying the verb. How long am I to play? Mm-hmm. Whereas, if I make the phrase, go play for a while, the article and the noun, the, the for, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, a while being an article and a noun, the article and noun are the object of the preposition. For right. is the preposition. Right, right. So you got to have a noun after it. Right. right. Okay. <laughs> 
If you can replace a while, two words, with another article and a noun, such as an hour, go play for an hour, (laughs) or a year, you know you want the two-word version. Okay, Kyle, that's about (laughs) it for today. You'll be back in a while. <laughs> and don't ask me. <laughs> Catherine Sherrill is our militant uh, You're just a talker. You're not a writer. <laughs> See you later, alligator. She told me Nearly made me lose my head Crocodile, Bill Haley, and the Comets on Ozarks at Large. As the more extreme precautions surrounding COVID-19 have eased, travel has started picking back up, including international travel. This month, Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth, accompanying producers of the KUAF podcast Points of Departure to Italy and Spain, to record interviews for future editions of the podcast created in tandem with Arkansas Global Changemakers. The podcast is about how people from around the world can connect to discuss possible solutions for local challenges. We'll hear portions of those podcasts on future episodes of Ozarks at Large. In the next few weeks, we'll also hear stories from Daniel about the University of Arkansas's travel abroad programs and the U of A Study Center in Rome. Today, though, just a bit of Europe for you in the form of sounds of Rome and Barcelona as collected by Daniel. Public streets, public concerts, buskers, public transit, fountains, and more from Barcelona and Rome, recorded by Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth. He was in the two cities to record interviews that we'll hear in future episodes of the podcast Points of Departure. That's a podcast produced by KUAF in conjunction with Arkansas Changemakers. And in the next few weeks, we'll hear reports from Daniel about study abroad programs. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents We the People, the Radical Notion of Democracy, featuring the nation's founding documents in conversation with American art, including a rare original print of the U.S. Constitution, opening July 2nd. Free tickets at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973. With backcountry and urban footwear, clothing, equipment, and more. PackRat is dedicated to conservation and waste reduction. PackRatOC.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, Marlon Blackwell. Much of his most recent work is beautifully photographed, discussed, and examined in the new book, Radical Practice. I needed to find the right folks that were also motivated uh, as well. And I knew that it had to be something 
that wouldn't be like a, an oof, you know, like everything you've ever done, you know, throw everything in the kitchen sink, right. but something curated. I want, I wanted it uh, to really speak to a uh, place, uh, an architecture that's uh, of its place, in its place, and for its place, and maybe sometimes slightly out of place. Uh, so that was sort of what we were trying to show. And then uh, Peter McKeith, the dean at the School of Architecture, I thought would make, he's been a, is a really great editor and has edited uh, many books, especially for like Johanny Palazma, the, the Finnish architect. Uh, and then Jonathan Bolkins, who's uh, our, my former studio director, who's now uh, teaches at the university, but uh, an excellent writer and editor. And the two of them together, you know, we can be the editors uh, for this. Uh, and Peter came up with the idea of radical practice. Marlon Blackwell, tomorrow on Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. on your public radio station, KUAF 91.3, and by accessing our Ozarks at Large podcast through any major podcast distributor. This is KUAF 91.3, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Rudd. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Mark Christ, and Daniel Carruth. Matthew Moore produced today's show from Studio 120. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Speaking of Matthew Moore, I am in Studio 120 with him. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Kyle. Tomorrow we co-host this program. Yes, we do. And we are uh, one of the stories that I'm going to be doing is talking about Ozark Mission Project. I had a chance last week to go to three different construction sites, visited with volunteers from Sequoia United Methodist Church. Got to really hear some really awesome stories uh, about people in the community and the work that's being done for them and with them. These are young people, right? Teenagers? Yes. We've got sixth grade through 12th grade. There's college students who kind of oversee all of the projects, uh, some slightly older than college staff who are helping as well. Um, uh, just a, a, But the majority of the work is being done by teenagers. And we're talking like painting, building uh, wheelchair ramps, things like that? That's right, yes. Actually, at the Watermelon House, just right down here, they installed a new mailbox. Um, they did everything from painting houses, building wheelchair ramps, uh, doing some weeding and some lawn work, a lot of really great things uh, all across uh, Fayetteville and even down into Brentwood. Oh, nice. Ozark Mission Project. Yes. We'll hear that story tomorrow, right? Yes. Okay, because I'm counting on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. We've got it in the can. It's ready to go. Excited to share it. All right. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF. We'll also have that conversation with Marlon Blackwell. And I'm sure there's some other things that are going to be on there. Uh, That's uh, It's going to be a short show if we don't. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know how long Marlon and I talk. That's very true. But, no, we will have more on there. Uh, Let's see. You can also find past episodes and individual stories and interviews at OzarksAtLarge.com. That's right. We've got two different podcast feeds as well. If you want to listen to the full version of the show, you can find that at Ozarks at Large. If you want to hear the individual stories and share those with your friends, you can do that by looking up the Ozarks at Large Stories podcast. All right. We have more tomorrow on our brand new Wednesday, July 6th edition of Ozarks at Large. Thank you, Matthew, for being here. Thank you for being with us. I'm Kyle Kellums.